0: This is Sound Lives, a New Music Box podcast sharing insights and stories from people who dedicate their lives to new music. Brought to you by New Music USA, the resource for adventurous creators and listeners in the U.S. and beyond. You're listening to the opening of Rain, the second movement of Julie Giroux's Symphony No. 5, The Elements, in a performance by the Eastern Wind Symphony with Todd Nichols conducting, available from Mark Records.
1: Welcome to Sound Lives. I'm Frank J. O'Terry. Today, I'll be speaking with Julie Giroux about her music for Wind Band, her work in Hollywood, and how she's coping during the pandemic. Ideally, it would have been great to do this in person, these things row is better in person but this is the 2020 way we do everything right
2: yeah it really is it's uh it's kind of crazy it really it it's almost uh i don't know the whole thing is surreal i think
1: it's true it's true i don't want to dwell too much on 2020 and the weirdness of it i want to talk about you because your music is well beyond 2020. It's before this year and will continue for many years after this year, but obviously we will talk about the events of this year because it's affected all of us and it's certainly affected how music is made and performed and all of that. But to begin, you've composed music in so many different idioms throughout your career, but a huge focus for you for decades now has been the Wind Band, what attracted you to write for wind band and what's kept you going with it all this time?
2: I started writing for band in junior high and my first piece published, which was Mystery on Media Mountain, I wrote when I was 12. I started really early, but I actually started composing way before that, but that was my first band piece. And so when I was in junior high, I was writing for junior high band because that was the level I was, right? That was the level my brain was, my playing was. And that was kind of what I understood what was going on. And then when I got to high school, I upped it and I knew, you know, what, what you could play in high school. And, and then when I went to college, I really didn't write college level band music because I was doing commercial music. Yeah, I'm a Frenchman player. So I was playing in the symphony and a uh, battery symphony and of course the College Symphony. And I had felt like um just more I wanted to do. I mean, I wanted to explore the whole orchestral thing, which I didn't have any exposure to because I was in high school, we didn't have an orchestra. We just had band. And uh, so I was really mentally exploring those those venues commercial music and orchestral music. So all of my early band music is pre college, really. And then I stopped writing for band for many years and, and was just doing commercial music. So then uh, I think in 1992 um, ish, I started back writing for band and not really full time, just here and there. And then it would gotten really to be full time around 1998, I think. So now here we are in 2020, 22 years of band music, but really strong the last 18 years as far as, you know, writing a lot of it.
1: You were born in Massachusetts, but you grew up in Louisiana, and now you live in Mississippi. So your experience was playing band in school. Is that how you got immersed in music?
2: Absolutely. I mean, um, my dad was in the Air Force. We moved around a lot. I mean, I was born in Boston. My brother was born a year and a half later in California. And then we moved to Phoenix. I went all through grade school up to grade school in Phoenix, Arizona. And then we moved to Arkansas and we moved to Louisiana. Music was the only thing that was constant in my life, really, as far as that goes. I mean, man, my brother, we were very close because of, you know, that type of a background. Once I got to Louisiana, that's when I really started writing band music. Once I got to do mid-junior high, my first band score that I sent off was on art paper that I had drawn all the lines on because, you know, as far as my, there, there's no musicians in my family. It wasn't anything like that. I was totally on my own. When I wanted to write for band, I could see my junior high band directors, uh, Charles Minfield. everybody called him Minnie. I could see Minnie scores and I was like, my score has to look like that. And so the only way I could do that, I mean, with my parents, if you couldn't buy it out of the Sears catalog or a Kmart, it didn't exist. So I would spend Sundays drawing lines with ink on art paper. And so my first piece, Mystery on Muna Mountain, that I sent in, which is still on a lot of state contest lists now, was on art paper. And even in junior high, I didn't, like I said, because there were no musicians in the family. I knew that when my best friend, who was a saxophone player, played her C, it wasn't C. And I was a horn player, and I knew Musy was in the seat. And so I thought, I wonder what everybody in the band is doing, you know? So I made my own transposition book in the seventh grade, and interviewed everybody in the band, and then you know. And I think I guessed wrong with the Glock, you know. Once it gets really high, you don't know what what it is. I mean, of course, I know what it is now, but back then, I think I missed an octave there. I I don't think I realized it was a whole octave higher than that. But I think because I wrote it out, I never have to think about it because it's been a part of me for so long. I never use C score. I don't write in a C score. I write in a transpose score. When I think of a trumpet, I think of their C. My mind has already you know, said, oh, that's a B flat. And I don't think about it. I just write. And when I'm thinking trumpet, I'm thinking a trumpet key. When I think about horn, I'm thinking a horn key. So if I'm just yelling at the band and say, oh, my God, you know, contrabass, uh, E flat clarinet, I say, play your B flat. I know what note that is. I just always say their are no, because I'm thinking their are no. A lot of that, too, might be because of being a Frenchman, being, you know, a semi-professional player and always having to play all of those transcriptions where you had to transpose. We all underestimate the value of doing something by hand. Because I wrote all those instruments, transpositions down by hand, I remember them. I just didn't glance at a book. You know, I did, the, it's like a wild research project, right? You know, my own seventh grade dissertation was on transposition, basically. So I love that I carry that, and I've always carried that.
1: And you were inside the music, playing the horn, which has got a, a wide range, sort of mid-range. But in terms of the band, it's sort of the viola of the band, because it's in the middle of the ranges. And it sort of allowed you to hear all these sounds around you. You're also a pianist.
2: Yeah, well, when I first started playing, I was around two or three, and I had one of those baby. They looked like a piano. You remember? I don't know if you remember those, and I don't know if they still make them. But you know, it was like a little wooden piano, and it had an octave and a half on it.
1: Oh, toy pianos! Yeah, those are oh, piano. those are great. They're great instruments to write music for. And
2: I didn't. I never thought about that. Maybe because I just don't want to revisit that. But uh, yeah, <laughs> I started on that, and then and then at some point we got a piano again while I was really young. When my grandfather would come over on the weekends on my dad's side, he would play that piano. And when he would leave, I would try to play what he played. And he was a fantastic piano player. He didn't read music. He played everything by ear. But he could play. You could just say, play this, and he'd play. I got that genetic. He was on my mom's side, too. So I had it on both sides, but none of it was official. Nobody read music. They just all played music and sang it, and, and all instruments. I mean, I can, if I think about all my mom's 10 brothers and sisters, there's a lot of instruments there that they all played, and I watched, and, and uh, grew up around, so because I'd always played piano, when I got into the band, I realized I was only playing one note, you know, and that's pretty boring when you go from playing full things to, oh, oh my god, I'm only playing one note. Not that it wasn't, it was easy, you know? I mean horn isn't easy, but it was still my mind all the time listening Listening to music. And still, I was always listening to what everybody was doing. I mean, I would kind of pay attention to my part, but not much. I'm not going to lie about it. I was always listening to what everybody was doing so that I could see that visually on a score. And I, when I first wrote my first band piece, that's what locked it in for me, that I could see it and knew what I was hearing, how it would look on paper. And even now, I mean, I can go see a movie and I can hear the score back. I can come home and write, you know, as much as I can remember. For the first five or six years I was in LA, I made a lot of money just doing takedowns. There were a lot of Duke Ellington charts that they didn't have music for anymore, but they had the recordings in there. I got asked constantly, hey, you know, do this orchestral Duke Ellington chart. I can remember he did a five minute thing of Dixie that was 90 miles an hour for orchestra. And it was a phenomenal chart, but there were no parts. And that was the first takedown I ever did. It's
1: fun. Oh, that's amazing. (laughs) That's really, so from the beginning and through your life, you have this whole world of the timbre of sounds in your head. I mean, there's so many people who begin composing and maybe they play the piano, so they'll write a lot of piano music and then they'll write chamber music and expand. Or if you're a singer, you'll write vocal music and expand. But from the beginning, you had this large ensemble sound world in your head. You already have a whole, and then when you write other things, you sort of have to step back and maybe reduce. I've read, I've never heard any of it, that you've also written chamber music. When you have access to like 100 people, suddenly writing a piece for only four or five seems...
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty boring. I I mean, it's not enjoyable. I, I don't remember if it was Frank to Kelly. You know, maybe they can only have five kids, maybe they have a 10 or whatever the number is. And so we got together. And you're sitting there trying to make it as good as possible. My goal was to be sure that if they played one of my adaptable pieces, I would be perfectly comfortable with that being played as a concert in that mode. So I didn't want to just crank out crap. I wanted to be sure that I could be proud of what I put out. It took me five or six versions of One Life Beautiful because it is such, the counterpoint in that is so involved and the chords are so involved. I mean, those chord changes are just really uh, unusual. And so it took forever to get it to sound like real music. But I remember we had this conversation and it was like, either he said it or I said, it. I don't remember, but it was like, man, if I'd been wanting to write this chamber music, I'd have already been doing it. And none of us, I don't think, really wanted to do it as a composer, but as a human being, being in this situation that we are in, of course, we all wanted to do it. And we all switched to making oars so that we could keep this boat moving. I mean, we were building boats before, but now, now we're just building oars, but it's what we have. And it's very difficult to write right now because of that. I don't really have any dates. I literally don't leave the house for another year, as far as my calendar goes, a year from now. And now I have a whole nother year to sit here and eat, cheetos goes and play video games. This is a little scary, right? But it's very difficult to write because... I don't care whether you write for film and television and you write something tonight and they pick it up in the morning and you're recording it that afternoon, or if you're writing it now and it premieres a year from now. At least you know you're working towards something. A lot of us were having a hard time doing anything, and then we're like, oh, well, we can do that. That'll happen now. And so that's what we all did. But as far as writing my symphony right now, it's very, very difficult. I don't have a performance date. It might be in 2021. I mean, that's all I know. And so I'm just really working on the technical aspects of it because it is with video and because there are other sounds that go with it. It's not just band. And so I'm working on that. That's doable. But the
1: sixth it's symphony. The sixth symphony. Yeah. The other thing that's so interesting, you, know, you talk about this weird moment we're in and, and having to create auras. I've been telling composers for years that if they want to really get their music out there in the world, that the media that they should write for are either chorus or wind band because those communities are so open to doing the music of living composers more than, say, the symphony orchestra or the string quartet or you know piano trios, which have the, these repertoires and these kind of iconic masterpieces. But the wind band really celebrates composers. It, of course, now it's like it's topsy-turvy. It's like the world is upside down because now chorus and wind band are the two most dangerous ensembles to write for because they're all about breath. So they're potentially toxic instrumentations. Although the wind band has been so open, so many living composers, there's been sort of a profile that a lot of those composers have had. What amazes me about you is that you've kind of Broke out of that to the point that I'll say I remember I've been going to the Midwest Clinic now for about five years. I remember the first year I was there, you were the only female composer on any of the programs that I went to, and I thought that's interesting. And that's what that's what I said. I have to meet this Julie Giroux. I've got to know who she is and yeah. her music and talk to her. But. You managed to break into that world. Now lots of other people are breaking in. And Omar Thomas, the first black composer to win the Ravelli award was a huge deal. But there still hasn't been a woman who's won any of those awards. So I'm curious, you know how, how did you break into that dude world of band music?
2: My whole career has been that way. When I won my first Emmy, I was the first woman that, to win that award. I was the youngest person to ever win that award. I didn't think about that before it happened. It just happened. I think if you bring the skills to the court, you're going to play. That's just all there is to it. And I'm not a huge basketball fan, but that analogy works really well. Although I did go to school with Shaquille O'Neal. He was in my English class. We're the exact same age. Uh, And we we went to college together, but let's face it. If Shaq sucked, he wouldn't have played, but he could play. So he played. And like you saying that you would recommend uh, your students to write for for band and orchestra. That's what I do too, because it's an open field, but more so it's not political. It really isn't political uh, unless a composer makes it political, but let's face it. Publishers are in the business to make money. That's all they do. That's why they have the business. The only way they're going to make money is if they sell music that people will play. So if you write good music, people will play it. That's all there is to it. And I am not smart. And in the eighth grade, I made a score on art paper and sent it to to five publishers. And all five wanted to publish it. So I learned a really valuable lesson on that day. Only send it to one publisher at a time because I made one good friend and four enemies (laughs) one day. But that's the point of it. I just did it. I didn't think about it. I didn't know that there weren't women. I didn't think about it because I've been looking at names on the scores forever. And I thought they were all dead. I didn't know anybody was alive that was doing it. And it wasn't until I was in high school that I actually made a live, I met a living composer. And it was Francis DuBette, who was from my area. I just did it. I'm a highly opinionated person because I've been doing this a long time. I mean, I went to Midwest for years before they played my music. So when I hear some crybaby that's got three pieces for band crying that nobody's playing their music in Midwest, I have no sympathy because the only thing you have to do as a composer is compose. You don't need any pedigree from anywhere. You just write. And if it's good, people will play. It. And as far as the women thing goes, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that, and I love thinking about this every time I'm in Midwest, I sit there and I think, How many composers are in this exhibition hall right now? Is it 100? Is it 50? Whatever that number is. Let's just say it's 100 for fun, although I doubt there's that many in there at once. Out of that 100, how many of them are women? 10? 12 at the most? Now we're down to 12 people. Out of those 12, how good is that music? Is it great? Is it medium? Is it awful? It's going to be some of all of that. And you can think of it in the men as well as the women. It is a percentage of people that compose that the music is good. The percentage of music that is produced on any given year that's great, is a very small percentage. And I don't care if you're talking about band or pop music or whatever you're talking about. Think how many songs were written in 2019. It's gotta be in the millions. How many of those were good? So it applies. And so the low number of female composers making scenes directly reflects how many female composers there are in any given moment in time, just like with men.
1: The other world that you've worked in extensively, you know, film and and TV, and as you pointed out, you know, you won an Emmy, the first woman to win, win an Emmy. That's another world that has been mostly a domain of male composers, and that's changing now. But, you know, once again, you were the pioneer in there doing that. It seems to me that you were able to do all of that by not really worrying about it not thinking about it. <laughs>
2: just, <laughs> just doing it, yeah.
1: Just doing it.
2: I call it the Forrest Gump approach. I just went from one moment in time to another moment in time, and I just did it. And I think being a brass player, that really helped grease the wheels for me mentally and emotionally because I was used to sitting around men because there weren't that many women playing French horn either in the 70s. There just weren't. And I remember even my college audition. My horn teacher, who I absolutely adore, after I took my college audition, he told my mother, I played good for a girl. And my mom shot immediately right back, because she has no filter. She says, she plays good for anybody. And that was it. I just never thought about it. I was used to being around guys. I know I was probably in the business 10 years in LA before I even wondered, where are the other women? because it just didn't dawn me. I was busy, I was working all the time, night and day, seven days a week. And I just worked. And again, how many women were orchestrating for, for film and television at that time? Me, that was it. But how many were trying? I don't know. And how hard did they try? I mean, you know, I, I don't know what that number is. It was a very small number though.
1: Interesting, I'm very curious about this because we just started at New Music USA. We have a new program that we've just launched called Real Change, which is a granting program designed to incentivize, to encourage a greater diversity among people who write music for film and TV and media. But obviously, you know, when when you were doing this, there were no programs like that and people weren't even thinking in those terms. They certainly weren't mobilizing that way.
2: Right, and again, I have no doubt that back in the 50s and 60s that a woman had a very, very hard time of doing anything. I know that's real, and don't even think about before that. Before that, it must have been impossible. When you even just think about when women got the right to vote, to me, that's kind of when you start marking time forward. As soon as we gave any an inch of history that said, we are your equals, even though it was not that long ago, that has a lot to do with it. it'll always have a lot to do with it. I mean, it's going to be decades before everyone literally is equal. I believe that that day will come. I just don't think I'll see it.
1: Although, Um, you know, we now have a a female vice president-elect. So that's...
2: (laughs) That's amazing, right? I mean, it's just amazing. I don't have any fear whatsoever that a women composer out there that is sitting at home right now Writing a piece of music that's amazing is going to have a problem getting played. I just don't see that. The problem is for every person that I ever met, especially in Los Angeles, you know, in films, and television, whether it's an actor, producer, whoever it is, for everyone that's there, there are hundreds that aren't here, thousands that didn't make it that far, right? And what what is it that sets them apart? Well, there's always that small percentage of luck. But you have to look past that. And you have to realize that the other 95 percent of those people put themselves in the right place every day. And one day it was the right time. So the only way you're going to be at the right place at the right time is if you put yourself out there every freaking day. And it's difficult. It is hard to get up every day as a composer because composers aren't exactly extroverts. I mean, all I wanna do is sit at home under pajamas and write music, right? That's all that's all I wanna do, but you're never gonna get played if you do that. You have to enter competitions. You have to go meet conductors because the symbiotic relationship between a conductor and a composer is where everything is. That's where my whole career is. That's where it will always be. And I think that there's not enough emphasis with young composers to let them know just how important that is. Make relationships with conductors. They can make or break your music. Develop those friendships. It's like a snowball. It just grows because they have friends, they're conductor friends, and they have friends, and they go do concerts, and they go do these concerts, and now they're taking their music out of the country, and now it's on all these other countries, and that's where it all starts. The relationship between a composer and a conductor. That's it. It's
1: so simple. And at an event like the Midwest Clinic, you can interface with people. You know, when you said that you'd give an estimate of a hundred people in that room who are composers, I think having been there five years, you know, scouting people around, there's probably more than that.
2: You're probably right. But
1: it's it's, it's true. You know, some people are afraid to talk up. Some people, you know, like, what do I do? What I say is like, you know, I try to encourage people and say, composers, you know, through my advocacy work at New Music USA and say, you know, go and talk to this person. That's such a key thing with that event. I mean, now this whole thing is going to be on Zoom in December. I'm going, I'll be sitting at this table. I'm going from this table, right? (laughs) Um, But No, I wonder how it's going to work. It's weird, you know? It is
2: way beyond weird. I mean, it (laughs) is way beyond weird. I feel like we're in one of those really bad sci-fi films from the 70s where you, you get sucked into some computer and are trying to live that way. I mean, it's just really, really strange. But I think doing Zooms, as much as I do, and as much as I miss everybody, if Zoom is the only way that I get to be with these people, then that's fine. Yes, this isn't our first choice. It's probably not even box 99 that we would check as far as things that we want to do. But if we don't do this, we're not meeting at all. And musicians, if nothing else, we are a tribe. And right now the tribe is scattered all over the place in these little pockets of one everywhere. The only way we can function right now is this way. And... As much as it gives me a literally gives me a headache to do Zooms because I don't have glasses for this exact uh, moment, but no matter what it does to me that way, I always feel better after I do one because I've talked with musicians and we spent time together. Even if we're not playing, at least we're spending time together. I think it really emotionally is a must. I feel sorry for any musician out there that isn't doing Zooms right now. What are they doing? They must feel like an artistic orphan. So the Zooms are fantastic. I just wish technology had been to the point where we could all play from home and still have it instantly be like that instead of spending hundreds of hours engineering a three-minute Sousa March with a thousand people and you spend, you know, weeks putting that thing together. Kind of the way they're doing movies right now. But I don't think any of us ever thought a year from now this is where we'd be.
1: No. Definitely and didn't think it last December in Chicago at all.
2: You had said this was what was going to happen. You would think somebody was crazy. Bonafide, card-carrying loon, right? And then you'd go, yeah, right. And then here we are, at least nine months out, before you see a band get together on a stage for real. Like a real band on stage, sitting next to each other, play music, like we did, you know. All I can do to get myself through it is how beautiful it's going to be when it does happen. I mean, when it does happen, it's going to feel incredible. Even though it's going to sound like total hell because nobody's been playing together. I mean, i got friends that I haven't even picked their horns up, right, in six months. So there's that. Even the worst band rehearsal in history that happens, once we can all be together, is still going to be the best thing that's ever happened. I'm creating knowing that that experience is already going to be over the top as far as, you know, because we're all going to be so sensitive about it. You know, it's just going to be incredible. I really think my next symphony is going to be shocking in a way, because it is so extreme that way. You know, I mean, if, if everything had been just rolling along as normal, that symphony was already going to be a push as far as let's move band forward just another step this direction towards sounding like we can sound and not like a Susan March. Not that I have a problem with Susan Marches. I like Susan as much as the next person. But that's one sound, and I don't write for that sound. I write for the sound that I think the band can be. I want somebody to listen to band music and go, wow, that sounds like an orchestra. Not that I want the band to sound like an orchestra. I just know that the band is as complex and has as many colors as an orchestra does. And that our sound can continuously become more and more. I don't even know how to, how to describe it. other than It can just be so much more than it
1: is. We should be talking about the symphonies now. We, we should be talking about some of these pieces because these are pieces that I fell in love with and, and why I wanted to talk to you. Pieces like Elements and Bookmarks from Japan, you know, are just really powerful, evocative pieces that create entire universes. And one of the things about the band world is, yeah, and these pieces are hard. You know, in terms of the grading system, these are like fives and sixes. You know, you said, you know, like you're going in this other direction. So I'm imagining Symphony Number no. 6 as a 7. But it sounds to me <laughs> like what you're talking about, the first rehearsal that's going to happen after quarantine ends everywhere, is people are going to need to write a lot of 1s because that's <laughs> the that's <laughs> all anybody's going to be able to play. I <laughs> you
2: know. I know. We, could, we should probably all be sitting around writing method books right now because that's what's going to happen on the first day. It's going to be like... You're going to do the first downbeat and go, oh, sweet, Jesus, what did I just hear? But uh, now nah, it's going to be great. As a composer, of course, you want to get harder and harder. I mean, I could write grade nine. I know what a horn can do. The blessing that I have is is the the professional orchestration background. I know what every instrument can do. I know how it's fingered. I know how it's out of tune. I know what trills are impossible. I know what is possible. I learned the hard way what's possible. I could push everybody in the band to a point where it to break, or I could break it. I could easily break it because I could just go here, do this, and no, they can't do it. But as a composer, you want to grow, and you want to. Your art has to have somewhere to go. You know, I try and reinvent myself with every piece. I try and reinvent my style, the the, the sound palette that I'm going to use, the all those things, and so. And that's why my favorite uh, composer was always Jerry Goldsmith, because Jerry Goldsmith, you never knew when it was one of his scores. You had to see his name before you knew it. If you're listening to The Wind and the Lion or Alien, you go, that can't be the same guy. But it is the same guy.
1: Or Logan's (laughs) Run with all those crazy scales, synthesizers.
2: Yeah, crazy, right? I mean, just crazy stuff. So that's why he was my favorite was because he reinvented himself for every project. And I try to do that too, but it's so difficult as humans. I think we're kind of basically lazy as musicians, because once we find the groove that we really like, we're fine to stay right there. You know, we don't need to keep going, but as a composer, if you don't keep going, it's death. You have to keep going. Elvis stopped being Elvis because he stopped growing. He never evolved. You have to evolve. Just even for your own sanity, you have to evolve. I mean, I don't want to be the same person tomorrow than I am today. I got to be somebody different tomorrow. I'm trying to be somebody different today. I'm trying to be better. I'm trying to be whatever it is. So the symphony direction for me has to, I have to grow. And so if I were to just jump it up to a grade six or grade seven, I'm just hurting myself because the harder it gets, the fewer people that can actually play it. So as much as I want to pull every bell and whistle out of the closet, there's a part of me that goes, yeah, but you want it to be played more than once. You want to hear it right more than once. Or you want to hear it at least once right, right? So it's very difficult. So I'm having to really tamper this next symphony down to technical difficulties. To just try to stay away from so that I can keep it a grade five and not make it just the only colleges that can play it. I think with bookmarks, I hit the spot as far as there are so many people that can play that piece, it doesn't sound easy. And there are a lot of it that isn't easy, but it's not so hard that people can't play it, that high school kids can enjoy it. And I have to think of that because I was a high school horn player and hell, my parts sucked for the most part. So I'm trying to keep that in mind on this one. Number five elements took it definitely more difficult. I know, if nothing else, I created sounds colors that have never been heard in a band before. I know I did. I know in rain. Nobody's ever done that before. That technique has never been done before. And not just with band, it hasn't been done with orchestra either to score rain. And I don't mean cheating, like put down five random notes and say, just do this randomly. No, I didn't do that. I didn't leave anything to chance. I knew exactly the randomness that I wanted, and I wrote that randomness. And it took days to do that. It was weeks, because the first time I did it, I looked at it and I said, this is unplayable because of the rhythms." Having just people play randomly like that, it was like musical Tourette (laughs) syndrome. So I had to go back. I had to rewrite that three times, just so that people could figure out where they were supposed to play. I did that in five. So six, I want the challenge to be here I don't want it to be here so that's really in line with I think with what with what this next symphony is because we're not going to be here anyway in a year from now it's going to take a lot of catch up so if that symphony premieres October first we got October 2021 well we got a lot to catch up on before we can even start to play that kind of level of music anyway so I'm looking at how I can advance band music without it being grade nine.
1: I'm wondering, because we've been talking a lot about players and how they respond. I'm curious about listeners and what they're hearing, especially with the big symphonies, especially because in the band world, both in concerts and on recordings, often they'll only play one movement rather than the whole piece to really experience what you're doing, people really should hear the whole thing, the whole arc.
2: For me, it was always because I grew up poor, my mind is always thinking about the cost of the piece. When we did the first symphony, you know, Bruce and I, we had just gotten together. We just, you know, decided we were gonna do this thing. We're gonna make this company and we just did it. You know, I just wrote the symphony, we just did it. Same thing with the second one the third one. And then it wasn't until I started to go out and conduct them that I thought, I can't ask clinic band to buy an entire symphony to play one movement. I'm not going to do that. I immediately said we need to sell movements individually. And as a composer, I do try and make it to where they stand alone. So it's a group of short stories instead of one gigantic story. Well, it's both, right? It has to be so you have the one gigantic story, but you also know that if I just take this paragraph, oh, that's a story in itself. So bookmarks was definitely six different stories. But I wrote 14 of them to get those six because it's kind of like decorating. When you write the first one and then you write the second one, it's like the second one you painted the walls and you go, oh, now the floor looks like hell. Now I have to write a new floor. It's like decorating. So it took a while to get six that worked well together. So I definitely had my eye on the entire picture But I knew when we published it, I was going to sell it individually. And some people do pay individually. But I have to tell you, 90% of the time, people buy the whole thing and play the whole thing. Nice. I I didn't think that was going to happen ever in my mind. Did I think, oh, they're going to sit there and they're going to play the whole thing. Because it's so much Japan, right? I mean, it's just, here's Japan. And you're like, oh, we're going to do Japan. We're going to do six movements of of that. I don't know what the attraction was because it's not me. I, I can't remove myself from it. I just knew that I was writing it. It was a fun trip. It was a fun journey. I knew the first movement, the fourth movement, the fifth movement. It was all fun from one through six. That's kind of how I looked at it. But I wanted to be sure each segment was good. And I did the same thing with elements, but elements is more traditional. It's three movements, three big movements. I think on this one, I'm kind of splitting the difference. I might do four movements. I might be, I don't know. I'm I'm just working on it. So it'll go where it goes. But as far as the band genre goes, we like those little things all put together to make one. I think Granger set us up for that. If you sit there and you go, Lincolnshire, that's perfect for us. We can play the whole thing or we can play one movement. Mm -hmm. And we feel good on either circumstance. And so when I did bookmarks, that was my model. Not to sound like it, but that emotional feel of it. So that we play one movement, I feel fine playing one movement. I do myself. If I go conduct one movement, I'm fine with that. I don't want, I don't have to hear the whole thing. But if we do the whole thing, it's got to be a fun ride too. So I don't think Percy sat around thinking that. I think he just did whatever he ever wanted to do. And just like his music, it was a fluke. You know, his music to me is kind of a fluke. And he's one of my favorite guys. He really is, because of the sounds that he created. But it's a flute that I think he came up with the perfect format for band.
1: So now that we're in this weird moment where we can't do these things, we certainly <laughs> can't do a symphony, right? No. And you know, you talked about building these ores, You know, doing kind of reduced orchestrations of pieces. Is now the time for there to be the, the Julie Giroux wind quintet, brass quintet? Maybe, you know, socially distanced or, you know, string trio, some other thing that doesn't require so many people.
2: I mean, if this is going to continue, it's possible. But the truth of it is, if I start now on a serious work that is chamber, let's just say it's 15 players, 12 players.
1: That's still a lot of people.
2: (laughs) Chamber music is much, much slower going than like writing for full orchestra, because every instrument is treated as a solo instrument. As soon as you start thinking solo instrument, everything slows down. I mean, even just writing a piece that is for band and solo instrument, oh, my God, everything just slowed down completely because you don't have that flow. Unless you're going to do, like, jazz, and, of course, there's always that. You just can do that with that. But outside of that, I think it's, uh, it's very slow going. So even if I started right now, got off of this Zoom right now, just started trying to write a serious piece for band, about the same size as uh, Mozart's Serenade. Holy hell, it'll be four months before I finished with it. Five months? The symphony, is it going to, is it going to, uh, I'll just put that on the back burner. I mean, you no, know, it's one of those kind of things. I think logistically, it's not going to happen in my life because I already have a full schedule. And if I didn't have a full schedule, I probably still wouldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> and then you know why is because I am just a spoiled brat it's like I have a box of 168 crayons and if you want to give me 12 I don't want to color with 12 I want to color with 168 because so I want to just be overwhelmed with with the choices that I have and not to mention the counterpoint right I mean soon as you start talking 12 players, you start talking serious counterpoint if they're all solo players. That makes my brain hurt just thinking of it. Brasquitet, yeah, it's easy. Four parts, it's easy. Eight parts, okay. Nine takes a lot of stress off of each player because wins, right? So it becomes a little easier at nine because now you don't have to worry so much about how often people are playing because you have enough players now that you can get it off their face because wins so once you get to about 18 now you can just play with all these colors but oh my god the counterpoint I mean it does sound like something I need to do to be a better composer but it's not something I wanted to <laughs> it's just not just give me my 172 crayons and let me go play <laughs> That's it was
1: 168 now you're up to, to 172
2: <laughs> you know, I can't remember what that big box of crayons was is it like 96 or something I don't remember I just remember as a kid, you know, you got the little pack that had like 16 in it, or you could get that big box that had the sharpener on the side and had all those. To me, that's what band is. It's like, yes. And grade one is like somebody just says, here, here's your three crayons. Have fun. You're like, oh, no. (laughs) That's just me.
1: So I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up the incredible Christmas song arrangements that you've done and that hysterical mashup of Bolero and Little Trummer Boy. <laughs> I, <know. laughs>
2: I I have literally been crucifying Christmas music for about 35 years. And it goes back to the fact that, A, I love Christmas music. I can go in there and play any Christmas carol right now that you ever wanted to hear. I know them so well that they're just like I would. You know how it is as a musician, when you know something so well, you could have written it. You can think it, you can play it, you can write it down. Once you're there, then it's really easy to play with them because they're there. It's kind of like decorating the room. You have everything you need for this setup and you just do what you want to it. But it goes back to when I was uh, working uh, in Hollywood, I was working with millionaires. What do you give them for Christmas? that they don't already have five of. Being an orchestrator for Bill Connie all those years, and and, and I was like, what am I going to give Bill that he doesn't already have? I knew I could make him laugh, especially with mashups. Back then, before we really called them mashups, that's what I did. So the first year, I made a Christmas tape of one hour with my, you know, my crazy little sound modules, because at that time, you know, he had one module for each sound. Like, this is the machine that makes a bass guitar sound. And this is the machine that, you know, so you have a whole wall of these. And so I made Christmas tapes like that because I knew I could make him laugh. And at this time there was no CD, it was cassettes. I think I made a hundred cassettes and I gave them out as Christmas presents. I hadn't given them out more than two or three days. And everybody's calling me and saying, I got to have more. I want to give these for Christmas. And I was like, what? Oh, my God, it's so expensive. And it takes so long to make a CD recording, you know, because back when I started, you couldn't do them at fast speed. It was real time. It took an hour to to make an hour tape. I was constantly making those tapes. I did that for 18 years. So now we're talking 18 hours of some craziest Christmas music you have ever heard. And so it wasn't, I'd been doing band about 15 years when I came back until, you know, one of my friends uh, said, you ought to do those for band. And I said, oh no. I said, I'm not doing that for band. people, A, they're either going to be offended by what I did to these Christmas carols, or they're going to, even worse, not take me seriously. When in all honesty, that is way harder to do than anything else. To make musicians laugh and to do it in a way where it still sounds like music. You know, PDQ Bach. I was doing PDQ Bach when PDQ Bach was doing it. I absolutely love it. And I absolutely love Christmas music because to me, as an American, especially as an American that has traveled to so many countries, and I feel at different times of the year, and I feel what great history that they have. We don't have that, you know? We're like 230 years, you know? We don't have it. We don't really have folk music like they do. But our folk music is Christmas music. We all know it. We all sing it. There isn't a person in the United States that doesn't sing that doesn't know Jingle Bells. That's our folk music. It's the only kind of folk music we have. Truthfully, I mean, nobody's sitting around singing, you know, Dixie. The Civil War kind of ruined whatever whatever music we had uh, at that time. But again, none of our Civil War music was original. It all came from Europe. All of it. Stephen Foster was the biggest plagiarist in the world. None of his tunes are original. None of them. You can find them all in Ireland, England, France. You can find them all. Some of them, he was so lazy, he didn't even change the key of the original. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm not sure he wrote anything that was original. He was kind of like a spin doctor. Camp Town Lady sing this song. That's not his song. That is an Irish tune. Christmas music is ours. Even though it came from all these other places, it's what we all know. And to me, that's what folk music is, that if you were to just grab somebody off the street and sing it, they know.
1: Maybe the compromise then is to do some kind of chamber music based on the Christmas songs <laughs> for five people so we could have some music of yours to play in 2020. Actually,
2: actually I after I finish my symphony, I am going to write another Christmas album. Because I've got a friend that wants to do it with his band. And and, and he's like, we got to do this. And I'm like, great, I'm fine with it. That was entering my mind. Even though I won't be writing it for another six months, that was entering my mind because I was like, is it going to be for full band or is it going to be adaptable? <laughs> because that's the only way we're going to be able to record it, right? In my mind, that is kind of where I'm at. I'm thinking, how is this going to work? But I'll make it work. If it looks like eight months from now, it looks like that's where we're going to be, then that's what it'll be. It'll be an adaptable white trash Christmas. <laughs> that's what it'll be. <laughs> I'm dreaming of a white trash Christmas. I feel like that's what I'm dreaming now, because that's kind of what I think Christmas is going to feel like. But uh, my symphony won't. I'm going to pretend, that as I'm writing my symphony, I'm going to pretend that everything is back to normal. And so when it does happen, whatever it is normal, it'll be there. Of course, there's not much normal about this symphony. I got to tell you, it's it's out there. But I can't uh, wait to hear it. (laughs) You and (laughs) me (laughs) both.
1: Thank you so much for chatting with us. We've got to think that things are going to go back to some kind of, I don't want to say go back to normal because we don't want it to be normal. We want it to be better somehow. It's been great to be able to share at least an hour of this crazy quarantine time talking to you about interviews. music.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, it's always fun talking to a crazy person. So, uh, I, uh, yeah, I have a feeling it's going to be about a year when we're all just, you know, playing again. That's kind of like Christmas, isn't it? When we all can get together again and do it again. And I'm kind of trying to keep it in that box to know that it's coming, to know it's going to be a painful countdown, just like countdown to Christmas when you're a kid. But when it happens, it's going to be amazing. You know, it makes me smile just thinking about it. Just thinking about being in a rehearsal again with people hugging each other, talking, laughing. We're gonna, It's going to be a long wait, but boy, is it going to be something when it does come back.
1: This is Sound Lives, a New Music Box podcast. I'm Frank J. Oteri, and my guest today is Julie Giroux.
0: You're listening to Julie Giroux's The Little Drummer Boy's Bolero. Performed by the University of Texas at El Paso, Symphonic Winds. Conducted by Ron Hufstadter. Available from Mark Records. New Music Box is brought to you by New Music USA, the resource for adventurous creators and listeners in the US and beyond. This program is funded in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, the New York State Council on the Arts, the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, and listeners like you. If you enjoyed today's episode, visit newmusicusa.org to explore more stories and voices from our
2: new music community. Happy Holidays!